And we're now going to turn our study over to him as he speaks from God's word. Brother Freeman. Good evening. It's good to be here. It's good to see everyone um, who is here tonight. I'm thankful um, to your minister, Brother Rye, and the Viewfield Church of Christ for this invitation to be a part of your summer series um, as we are examining uh, great chapters of the Bible. And I guess um, it would be erroneous for me to say the title, that, the, uh, top, the chapter that was assigned to me was Titus chapter 2, but I actually picked that chapter, so I can't say it was assigned to me. But Titus chapter 2 uh, will serve as our chapter and our text tonight. But before we look at <clears throat> Titus chapter 2, I want us to consider, uh, and we've seen this, we've experienced this uh, many times, uh, especially when we are moving into a new area or when we are traveling out of town. Um, we look on the uh, internet, uh, we look, uh, some people still do look in the yellow pages, um, but whatever the case may be, you know, we start looking for a congregation. And many times, um, we start looking for congregations that are familiar to what we know uh, in our home and local congregations. And so many times we start looking for what we consider to be sound congregations. And so we start looking for congregations in that area where we may be traveling or where we may have just moved to, and we start wondering, is this congregation a sound congregation? And so when we think about that, uh, in today's times, in today's vernacular, um, when we think about sound, um, uh, we think about a congregation or a church that does not have uh, mechanical instruments of music. We think about a church or a congregation that does not have uh, women, women in leadership roles. Uh, we think about a congregation that's not off into a lot of entertainment, uh, but they stick with the New Testament pattern of worship. Well, let me ask you a question tonight. Have you ever thought about what makes a congregation sound? What are the characteristics of a sound congregation according to Scripture? And so with that question in mind, that's the thrust of Titus chapter 2. Notice now in Titus chapter 2, beginning at verse number 1, Paul would remind Titus, and just to give you a little background information, Titus um, is one of Paul's sons in the faith, just like Timothy, and so he has left Titus on the island of Crete. And so Crete um, was an island, um, and on this island they had uh, various towns. Um, and these various towns or cities, as Paul would call them, um, they had uh, local congregations. And so Paul wanted Titus to understand that it was important for him that as he traveled throughout the island of Crete to make sure that he set in order those things that were wanting or those things that were lacking. And so he begins off in Titus chapter 2 by showing the importance of Titus' responsibility as a preacher. Where he says in Titus chapter 2, beginning in verse number 1, But speak thou the things which become sound doctrine. You see, there's our word, sound. And that's one of the words you'll see throughout the book of Titus. The emphasis of being placed upon sound doctrine sound gospel, sound teaching, a sound in the faith. So Paul says, but speak thou the things which become sound doctrine, that the aged men be sober, grave, temperate. Then he tells them that they should be sober and they should be uh, uh, in charity. 
in patience. Then he tells them that the older women, the older women, that they be in behavior as becoming holiness, not false accusers, not given to much wine, but then he also says, but to be teachers of good things. What are they supposed to teach? They're supposed to teach the younger women. They're supposed to teach the younger women to be sober, to love their husbands, to love their children, to be good, to be obedient. And also, he tells them that they need to be obedient to their own husbands, to be discreet, to be chaste, to be keepers at home, good obedience to their own husbands. Why? So that the word of God be not blasphemed. Then he says to younger men, also, likewise, exhort them to be sober-minded. Now, I want you to think about what Paul tells Titus to do in these six verses. He says, speak thou the things which become sound doctrine. That's verse number one. But then, out of the 15 verses in Titus chapter 2, verse 15, he says, these things speak and exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no man despise thee. And so in Titus chapter 2, verse number 1, and Titus chapter 2, verse number 15, the emphasis is upon speaking, speaking sound doctrine. Now, we've seen this play out. What happens, you go to a wedding. You go to a wedding and you go through the formal, uh, the format of the wedding and you go through the ceremony. And then right when it comes down to that critical part of the wedding, uh, when they're about to marry the bride and the groom together and, and the minister, the attendant says, speak now or forever hold your peace. And so many times we go to weddings week in and week out, month in and month out, and nobody ever says anything. Nobody ever speaks. But that is quite the difference that Paul tells Timothy, to Titus rather. He tells Titus, you speak. You speak sound doctrine. You speak and exhort and rebuke with all authority. Why? Because Paul wants the congregations in, in, in Crete to be sound congregations. It should be our chief aim and goal as Christians and members of the body of Christ that at the congregations where we assemble, where we worship, our local congregation, we should desire and covet that they be sound. If we're going to have sound congregations and sound elderships and sound preaching, we must speak the things that become sound doctrine. And so what you have in Titus chapter 2, there are four sections. Four sections of things that need to be spoke upon. And things that would impact in verses uh, 1 through 6 that would impact the saints. In verses 7 and 8, things that would impact self, speaking of Titus. Verses 8 and 9, a thing, or 9 and 10 rather, things that would impact slaves, servants. And then verses 11 through 15, things that would impact sinners. Speak those things that become sound doctrine. First and foremost, verses 1 through 6, Paul tells Titus, you speak those things that are going to be sound doctrine. And in verses 1 through 6, these are things that are going to be important. They're going to be paramount to the, to the saints, to all of the saints on the island of Crete. So first and foremost, Paul says to, to Titus, speak the things that become sound doctrine. 
Now, mind you, in Titus chapter 1, he has already laid the groundwork by showing God hath in due times manifested his word. How? Titus 1.3? Through preaching. Preaching is important. We need preachers. We need Bible school teachers. We need Sunday school teachers. We need summer series teachers because God has made known and God has declared his word through preaching. So Paul has already laid the groundwork and showing to Titus that he must preach. He must speak. And so some of the things that, that Titus will have to speak about, he will have to preach about, first and foremost, hold the older men accountable. Hold them accountable for being sober, for being grave, for being temperate, sound in faith, in charity, in patience. Now, I want you to think about this. Titus has a responsibility to remind older men, some who may be older than himself, he has the responsibility of reminding them to be sober and grave and temperate and sound in the faith, in charity, and in patience. When we think about this word sound, the word sound has to do with wholesome, healthy. When, when, when the New Testament uses the word sound, sound doctrine, sound gospel, sound preaching, it's talking about healthy doctrine, healthy preaching. And so we are reminded of Acts chapter 3. You remember there was a man who was laid at the beautiful gate every day. And so he was healed by Peter and John. But when you get to Acts chapter 3, after he is healed, Acts chapter 3 and verse number 26, Peter says that by faith in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, does this man stand here before you sound in faith. The idea there is that soundness has to do with healthiness, wholesomeness. And so we need a dose of sound teaching, sound preaching. Older men need to be reminded to be sober and grave and to be sound in the faith. And then Paul tells Titus, you remind not only the older men, the aged men, you remind the older women that they be in behavior as becometh holiness. Then he says, not false accusers, not given to much wine. He says they should be teachers of good things. So, so if, you, if you can uh, um, envision Titus, um, he speaks to the older men. Now he has a responsibility to hold the older women accountable. And he tells them that they should have a certain type of demeanor, a certain type of behavior. And so it is the case that as Christians, we are called to live a certain way. He says that they ought to be in behavior as becometh holiness. Reason being, God is holy. Leviticus chapter 11 and verse number 44 to 45, God says, be ye holy, for I am holy. And Peter would echo those same sentiments in 1 Peter chapter 1, where he tells us in 1 Peter 1, 15 to 16, if we want to be like God, we ought to be holy. So Paul tells Titus, you make sure the older women understand that they shouldn't be gossipers, 
They shouldn't be false accusers. They should not be giving themselves over to drunkenness or, 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 or giving themselves over to being a field with wine, but he tells them to be holy. And so we're talking about being sound. One aspect of being sound is being holy. We are called to be holy. You know what happens many times. You ever been around people who really, who fully don't understand New Testament Christianity? And sometimes people say, well, you think you are holier than now. No, not really. But I know I'm called to be holy. To be holy means to be like God. God is a holy God. If you don't believe me, ask Moses. God told Moses in Exodus chapter 3 to take his shoes off because he was standing upon holy ground. And so Christian women, aged Christian women, are called to be holy, not false accusers, not given to much wine, but also older women are encouraged in Titus chapter 2 to be teachers of good things and to teach the younger women. I want you to think about this. Paul tells Titus, you make sure you speak to the older women, you teach the older women that they ought to teach the younger women. It kind of sounds like the words that Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2. The thing which thou hast heard of me, Paul told Timothy, 2 Timothy 2, 2, the same commit thou unto faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. And so it's, the teaching becomes perpetual. Every generation of men and women need sound teaching. And so he tells the older women, you make sure you teach the younger women. Well, what are they supposed to teach the younger women? To be sober, level-headed, clear-minded. And then notice what he says. Older women, mature sisters, ought to teach younger women to, number one, love their husbands and to love their children. And I believe by inspiration, Paul got that order correct. Paul says that Titus is supposed to tell the older women to teach the younger women to be sober, and number one, as it relates to domestic responsibility, first and foremost, to love her husband, then to love her children. In today's time, many wives, many husbands have that backwards. Many spouses put their children before their spouse. So Paul says, number one, a younger woman is supposed to be taught to love her husband. The word love, that means to be fond of, to have affection for. A younger woman, sometimes she may need to be taught how to love and be affectionate toward her husband and to have natural affection for her children. Sometimes that's it's missing. And so sometimes she has to be taught that. And who's better to teach a younger woman that than an older woman who's experienced marriage and rearing children? And so Paul tells Titus, make sure, if we want to speak sound doctrine, older men have a responsibility, older women have a responsibility. And the responsibility that older women have is they have a responsibility toward the younger women to make sure that the younger women know what they need to do in order to affect positively that domestic situation. And then he doesn't stop there. He tells them, after they are taught to be sober, to love their husbands, to love their children, 
those younger women also should be taught to be discreet, to be chaste, to be keepers at home, good, obedient unto their own husbands. Why? So that God's word cannot be blasphemed by those who don't believe that God's word is right. Now, let's think for just a moment because I know we live in a day and age where subjects like feminism, liberation, and things of that nature are being tossed around in the world, tossed around in society, and, even, and, and, and even the, uh, these terms and their, their definitions and their, and their meanings have infiltrated the Lord's church. There's nothing wrong with a woman who is married, who loves and cares for her husband and does the same by her children. And so Paul tells, there's nothing wrong with that. But then he also reminds those younger women to be discreet, to be chaste, to take care of the home. Now, I'm old enough to remember that this was so important that even in public schools this was taught. When I went to junior high school and when I went to high school, they taught things similar to this in a class called home economics. Of how that women should take care of the home. And so even from a public standpoint, this was important. But in today's time and society, where everybody wants to be free, everybody wants to cast off all restraint, nobody wants to be obligated uh, to their marital responsibilities, we are reminded that marriage is important, both from the, the husband's standpoint, but in our text, from the wife's standpoint. A wife has a certain responsibility toward her husband. Notice the verse. He says that wives ought to be discreet, chaste, keepers at home, good. And there's that awful dreaded word that people don't like to say, obedient, obedient to their own husbands. Can you imagine that? There go Paul, that male chauvinist, encouraging women to be obedient to their husbands. Here's the thing, brothers and sisters, friends and neighbors. It's not Paul saying it, it was God saying it through Paul. One of the responsibilities that wives have toward their husband is they ought to be obedient. Now, I'm not talking about a man who is a soft dictator, who's a tyrant, but Paul is saying that wives ought to be obedient. I heard a story one time where a preacher was counseling this couple and they were about to get married. Uh, they got to certain passages like Titus chapter two, verses three and four, where uh, women are told to be obedient to their own husbands and Ephesians chapter five, where the Bible says that wives ought to submit to their own husbands. And the wife said, well, what does it mean to submit? What does it mean to be obedient? Do you really think I believe for one moment in 2023 that women with all of the access that they have to higher learning, bachelor's degrees, master's degrees, postdoctorate degrees, all of these degrees, and we live in the age of information, you mean to tell me a woman does not know what obey means? A woman doesn't know what submit means? Sure she does. 
a woman understands what obey means as it relates to her children. A woman understands what obey means if she's a teacher in the school. A woman would understand what obey means if she was um, a supervisor over people. But all of a sudden, people say, well, we don't understand what obey means. And so Paul tells Titus, remind the older women to teach the younger women that they should obey their husbands. From a practical standpoint, that simply means that wives have to consider and listen to their husbands. And then he goes from the older men to the older women to the younger, uh, younger women. Then he says to the younger men. To the younger, the younger men have a responsibility as well. You notice in all of these verses, he keeps saying likewise, likewise. So just like the older men have a responsibility, the older women have a responsibility. And just like the older women have a responsibility, the younger women have a responsibility. And just like the younger women have a responsibility, the younger men have a responsibility. The younger men, their responsibility is to likewise also to be sober-minded. I wonder why he keeps mentioning being sober-minded. Because, you know, there's nothing new under the sun. They had wine and intoxicating beverages and drinks in Bible times. As a matter of fact, when you look at Proverbs chapter 20, verse number 1, even in the Old Testament, the Bible says that wine is a mocker and strong drink is raging, and whosoever is deceived thereby is not wise. When you look at Proverbs chapter 23, verses 29 through 35, it would give us a very brutal and graphic picture of the person who would be filled with intoxicating drink. And so it has always been the case that men and women have oftentimes looked to the bottle for solutions. But Paul keeps reminding Titus, you tell the older men, the older women, the younger women, the younger men, to be sober. We're Christians. We're the light of the world. We're to be sober-minded. And so the first six verses deals with doctrinal things that impact the saints in the local congregations at Crete. But then in verses 7 and 8, because the word of God is beneficial for everybody, verses 7 and 8 deal with self. These are things that Titus, these are things that Titus should be responsible for himself. He tells them in verses 7 and 8, he tells them that in all things, showing himself a pattern, he would, Titus is supposed to be a pattern to the believers, just like Paul told Timothy to be an example to the believers. He tells them to be um, a pattern, a pattern of good works, in his doctrine, showing uncorruptness, showing gravity, showing sincerity. And then in verse number eight, once again, Titus, just like in verse number one, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that he that is of the contrary part may have no evil thing to say of him. As a preacher of the gospel, Titus, Timothy, and all men today who will preach and teach and proclaim the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, we should be teaching and preaching sound doctrine. 
The reason being is because when you compare Timothy and Titus, uh, these epistles, Paul would say in 2 Timothy chapter 3, in verse number 15 beginning, he would remind Timothy, just like he's reminding uh, uh, Titus, and that from a child, thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. He doesn't stop there. 2 Timothy chapter 4, beginning at verse number 1, I charge thee therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word, be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine, for the time will come when they will not endure what? Sound doctrine. And so that's why Paul tells Titus, you make sure that what you preach is sound. It is sound, it is logical, it is reasonable, it is rational, and what you preach, it cannot be condemned even from those who may oppose it. So it is the case as gospel preachers, we preach a doctrine that can be examined, it can be proven, but it cannot be condemned. When we preach pastors like Ephesians chapter four, verses four through six, that there is one body and one spirit, even as your call and one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith and one baptism, one God and Father who's above all and through all and in you all, Ephesians four, four through six, those things can be examined, but they can't be condemned. And so Paul tells Titus, you make sure you preach sound speech that cannot be condemned because there will be those who are in opposition to it. There will be those who, who will look at it as unfavorable. They will be contrary to it. It can be examined, but it cannot be condemned. You know, one of the things I learned early on as a Christian, that God's word is not going to change because I disagree with it. God's word is not going to change because I don't believe it. God's word is not going to change because I don't like it. And so Paul tells Titus, make sure that what you preach is sound speech that cannot be condemned. And so we have a responsibility to preach those things that are sound that may impact the saints, verses 1 through 6. But even as gospel preachers, we have to examine God's word even for ourselves. So verses 7 and 8 are for Titus himself as a reminder of why he should be preaching sound doctrine. But then, verses 9 and 10, this sound doctrine should also, it should also impact the servants or the slaves. Do understand that when you read the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, one of the things that God does not do, God does not hide the atrocities of, of, of human behavior. It is the case even 2,000 years ago when the New Testament was being written, slavery existed. As a matter of fact, slavery has always existed. When you think about God's people, Israel, how were they formed? In slavery. In Exodus chapter 1, God's people, the nation of Israel, they were formed in Egyptian oppression and slavery. And so slavery has always been around. Sidebar, and so it's interesting, 
as we consider that slavery has always been around and God's people, they were formed out of slavery. When you read John chapter 8, those same descendants of those people who were formed in slavery said, we be Abraham's seeds and we've never been in bondage to any man. What are you talking about? You were in bondage to Egypt. You were in bondage to, to, to the Babylonians to the Assyrians, to the Grecians, to the Medes and the Persians, and they were even in bondage to Rome at the time they made the statement. So slavery has always existed. So God does not hide that. What God does, God gives us his word so as to mitigate the damages that may be heaped upon the slave. If you don't believe me, at your leisure, read the book of Philemon. When you read the book of Philemon, Paul, in the book of Philemon, Paul meets a young man by the name of Onesimus. Onesimus is a slave. Onesimus is a slave who's run away from his master, Philemon. And so um, in the process of time, as he ran away from his master, uh, uh, Philemon, he encountered the apostle Paul who converted him to the gospel. You know what Paul does? Paul knows that even though Onesimus is a slave and he is now a Christian, he still is obligated to his master Philemon. So Paul tells Onesimus, you return back to your master. But he also tells Philemon, his master, you have to look at him differently now. He is no longer a slave. He is now your brother in Christ. So the relationship is different. The reason why I'm saying that is because when you get to the New Testament and the New Testament starts highlighting subjects and topics of slavery, Paul is telling Titus, he tells him in Titus chapter uh, 2 in verse number 9, exhort servants to be obedient to their own masters. The same word in verse number 9 that's related to slaves and master is the same word that's related to husband and wives in verse number five. Paul tells Titus, make sure you tell those slaves, especially the Christian slaves, that they have to obey their masters. Not answering back, not speaking back, not purloining, not embezzling money, not stealing anything from their master. But he says in verse number uh, 10, but showing all good fidelity that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. And so Paul has moved from the saints. He's moved from Titus himself. Now he's speaking to the relationship of servants or slaves. You see, sound doctrine is going to impact all of these people and these relationships. Slaves in New Testament time had a certain responsibility even to their masters. And also the masters had a certain responsibility toward their slave. Paul would remind those, slave, those Christian slave owners, Ephesians chapter 6 and verse number 9, and the Colossians chapter 3 and verse number 25, you have to treat them a certain way because you also have a master in heaven as well. And so Paul is regulating the, response, the, uh, the relationship between slaves and slave owners through the preaching of sound doctrine. And so we move from saints to self to slave. But then in verses 11 through 15, 
Paul says, for the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that glorious appearing, for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. These things speak and exhort and rebuke with all authority. And so in verses 11 through 15, Paul is reminding Titus that he ought to be preaching sound speech that's going to impact sinners, that's going to impact those in the world. What the world needs to understand, the world needs to understand that God loves them. The world needs to understand that God loves the world. How many times have you been in traffic, you've been um, behind someone and they have a bumper stick on their car and, and most people uh, who are uh, um, uh, pseudo-religious, they're always gonna have a, a bumper stick or something on their car with reference to John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. But does that ever cross your mind? Why do we have John 3.16 in the Bible? The reason we have John 3.16 in the Bible is because of John 3.17. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but the world through him might be saved. You see, the reason why Jesus came into the world because the world was already condemned. And so because of the love of God, the mercy of God, the grace of God, and the salvation of God is Jesus coming to die for our sins. So Paul says, for the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, there's our word again, righteously and godly in this present world. So what the, what, what the grace of God does, what sound speech does, it teaches us. It teaches us how to think, it teaches us how to behave, it teaches us how to worship, it teaches us how to treat our fellow man. The grace of God teaches us how we ought to live in the world that is contrary to God's will. And so when you think about it, most people think about grace. Most people think about grace as God's unmerited favor, and it is. Grace is God's undeserving favor. One has said acrostically that grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. Oh, yes, it is. According to Hebrews chapter 2 and verse number 9, the Hebrew writer says, But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than angels, for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. Let's be reminded tonight, Jesus died for every person who has ever lived. Whether they're male or female, uh, um, Jew or Gentile, black or white, rich or poor, educated or uneducated, Jesus died for everyone by the grace of God. And Paul says that same grace that presents to us the death of Jesus, that same grace teaches us that we ought to live a certain way. Now, why is that important? The reason why this is important because many times people like to abuse the grace of God. God's grace 
does not give us license. It does not give us permission that after we become children of God to live any kind of way that we want. And so Paul says God's grace teaches us. Now, when you think about that, most of us, when we turn 16, we can't wait to go and get our driver's license, do we not? I mean, I could not wait till the day I turned 16 so that I can get my driver's license. And so you go down and you take the test, you go to the DMV, you take the driver's test, and, and you pass the test, and you can't even wait to, get to, uh, get to the place where you can take the picture. But have you ever noticed something? Even with the driver's license, a driver's license does not give you liberty to drive any and everywhere. And a driver's license does not even give you liberty to drive any kind of way that you want. You see, a license still has regulations. Grace, even though grace is God's unmerited favor, it still has regulations. And Paul talks about that in Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6 and verse number 1, Paul would say, what, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid, how shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death, that like as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also, who are raised by the, by the glory of God, shall walk in the newness of life. Paul is saying that God's grace does not give us liberty or license to live in a way that we want to. So what God's grace does, it teaches us how we ought to live in conformity to the will of God. We ought to live... Paul says, it teaches us to live and to deny ungodliness and worldly lust, to live soberly, righteously, godly, when and where in this present world. Do we not realize the world, with all of its beautiful and wonderful attractions, all of its uh, vacation destinations, the world is an ungodly place. The world is a place not fit for a Christian. So what Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, Paul says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And then Paul says in Romans 12, 2, and be not conformed to this world but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God, Romans 12, 1 and 2. You see, God's grace teaches us that we ought to deny the things that the world will give to us. And so we ought to deny ungodliness and worldly lust, deny two negatives, but also to embrace three positives, to live soberly and righteously and godly. Why? in anticipation of he who is to come back. Titus chapter 2 and verse number 13, looking for, that's in anticipation of, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and our Savior Jesus Christ. I believe many times what ends up happening in the lives of Christians, sometimes we think because Jesus Christ has not come back, we think he won't come back. But Paul says we ought to live in such a way looking for in anticipation of that blessed hope and the glorious appearing. He's going to come back. 
Jesus Christ is coming back. And so one says, well, why don't he just hurry up and come back? The reason why Jesus has not hurried up and came back, and I'm thankful that he hasn't, because God is being long-suffering to all of humanity. Second Peter chapter 3 and verse number 9, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Aren't you thankful that Jesus Christ hasn't come back yet? Don't you have some family members who are not Christians? Don't you have some friends, some colleagues, some neighbors, maybe even some children who have abandoned apostatized from the faith? Aren't you glad he hasn't come back yet? And so Paul tells Titus, remind the Christians, remind them that they ought to be looking for that blessed hope and that glorious appearing of our great God, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, what did Jesus do? He gave himself. He gave himself. Jesus voluntarily and willingly laid down his life for our sins. Jesus gave himself so that he might redeem unto himself a special kind of people. And so when we think about that, we think about Jesus, the importance of Jesus' death. Quickly before our time is up, let's look at Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, Paul says that he gave himself in Titus chapter 2 and verse number 14. But Romans chapter 5 paints an even clearer picture. Romans chapter 5 and verse number 6. Romans 5, 6. Paul says, for when we were yet without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely, for a good man's son would even dare to die. But God commended his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Notice now, Paul says that when we were incapable, unable of saving ourselves, that's what the phrase without strength means. None of us in here could save ourselves. God did for man what man could not do for himself. Through God's grace and through God's long-suffering, and here in Romans chapter 5, through the love of God, God sent Jesus to die for us, Romans 5, 6, while we were ungodly, Romans 5, 8, while we were sinners, and Romans 5, 10, while we were enemies of God. And so when one thinks about that, because of the death, the burial, and the resurrection of God's Son, Jesus Christ, which was an expression of God's grace, God's mercy, and God's love. Romans 5, 9, we are saved from the wrath of God by the death of Jesus Christ. And so when we think about Titus chapter 2, Paul says, who gave himself for us, the importance of sound preaching, sound speech. Sound speech impacts saints, it impacts the preacher, it impacts the slaves or the servants, it impacts sinners, but sound speech also reminds us of the love of God. Tonight, do you recognize Jesus died for you? He was buried the third day, resurrected for your sins. That's the gospel. 
the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 1 through 4. Tonight, you need to understand that only through the gospel can man be saved. Romans 1.16, Paul would say, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. We've already noticed, according to Hebrews 2.9, that Jesus died for everyone. That simply means God wants everyone to be saved. God wants to save everyone, 1 Timothy 2.4, who will have all men to be saved and to come into a knowledge of the truth. The problem is everyone doesn't want to be saved. Everyone does not want to take God up on his opportunity of salvation, but God wants to save everyone. So tonight, you can understand and you can know that God loves you. He wants you to be saved through his son, Christ Jesus. Will you take God upon his offer? Will you believe the gospel? Will you repent of your sins? You see, you have to repent. Everyone who became a Christian in the New Testament, they had to repent. Repentance is a changing of the mind that leads to a reformation or change in behavior. According to 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 8 through 10, we have to repent. On the day of Pentecost, Peter told that crowd, Acts 2.38, to repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sin. Has it ever dawned of you why we have Acts chapter 2 and verse number 38? Acts chapter 2 and verse 38 is the answer to Acts 2.21. In Acts 2.21, Peter had already said, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Well, what does it mean to call upon the name of the Lord? Well, you don't have to search for because the answer is in verse 38. To call upon the name of the Lord is equal to repenting and being baptized into Christ Jesus for the remission of sin. That's what it means to call upon the name of the Lord. To call upon the name of the Lord means to be obedient to the Lord's command. Because in Acts chapter 22 and verse number 16, Ananias told Saul, And now why tarriest thou? Arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. You see, you got to repent and you have to obey the Lord. Then you have to make confession. That's what the eunuch did in Acts chapter 8. In Acts chapter 8, you read about the eunuch. And the eunuch says, See, here's water. What the enemy to be baptized? And so when one looks at Acts chapter 8, you can be impressed by the eunuch's willingness to, to, to read God's word, to study it, to be humble enough to say, you know what, I need help, but also for him to recognize his undone condition. And he said, there's water. What's hindering me? What's preventing me tonight from being a Christian? Philip said, thou mayest if, if thou believest. How do we know that the eunuch believed that Jesus Christ was the son of God based upon Old Testament prophecy because of his confession. His confession let Philip know that he believed that Jesus Christ was the Son of God. And once he made that confession, the Bible says they both went down into the water and he baptized him. The last culminating act of gospel obedience, you have to be baptized into Jesus Christ for the remission of sin. There's no other way to get into Christ, Galatians 3, 26 and 27. For ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many as you have been baptized with Christ, have put on Christ. 1 Corinthians 12, 13, for by one spirit are we all baptized into one body. Whether we be Jew or Greek, bond or free. Tonight, we need to appreciate sound speech. Sound doctrine. Sound doctrine leads us into truth.
without sound speech, without sound doctrine, without the sound teaching that comes from the New Testament, men and women cannot be pleasing to God. So tonight, we're given an opportunity to obey the gospel of Jesus Christ because the gospel is, in fact, sound teaching. Let us stand.